several years ago, I taught at NCS, uh, taught Bible and history, and one of my favorite things to do was give pop quizzes. So today we're going to have a pop quiz. Now, the quiz should be easy if you were at the Oklahoma State meeting last week and you went to the church planners conference like I did. So if you were there and you paid attention, it should be easy. First question, right? What is the, the population of the state of Oklahoma? Anybody have an idea? According to Google, the omniscient Google, it is approximately 3,880,000. Now, another question. Out of the 3,880,000, how many people in the state of Oklahoma do you imagine would be what we might call lost or unchurched? In other words, they have no connection to the church of Jesus Christ at all. Right now, we're talking about the, the buckle of the Bible belt, Oklahoma, right? Well, according to a guy that I heard this week, it is approximately 2,328,000. Now, that's a lot of folks in, in Oklahoma. That's not Oklahoma in another state. That's just Oklahoma. But that's a big number, and it's hard to, to wrap our minds around it. So let me kind of help you to put it in a picture. Raise your hand if you have ever been to, to Boone Pickens Stadium for a football game or something. Raise your hand. It's okay. Don't be ashamed. There's nothing wrong with being from Oklahoma and rooting for an Oklahoma team. It's not like you're from Oklahoma rooting for Texas. That would be shameful, right, Alan? But, I mean, other than that, that's not. Okay. How many people, how many times would the lost field Boone Picking Stadium? 39 times. The number of lost in Oklahoma would fill Boone Picking Stadium 39 times. Now, raise your hand if you've been to the, the Gaylord Stadium. Right. How many times do you think the number of lost in Oklahoma would fill that stadium up? 28 times over. Now, who's been to see the Thunder play at the Chesapeake Energy Arena? Okay. You've been there with all that crowd of people and all that noise. How many times do you think the number of lost run church in Oklahoma, Oklahoma, would fill up that stadium? 129 times. Again, we're, we're talking just about Oklahoma. Now, anytime we begin to talk about numbers like this, there's always pushback. There's always people who say, you know, how do they get those numbers? Where do they come from? You can kind of do anything you want with numbers. So I wanted to bring that to give the big picture of what we have going on in Oklahoma. But I want us also to think about Guyman, where we are. According to the omniscient Google, there are about 12,272 people, according to the 2013 census in Oklahoma. Right, that, or in, in Guyman, that is our population in Guyman. Now, knowing the pastors in the city that I know and talking to them about their average attendance, how many people would you guess were in church on a given Sunday? Right, an average Sunday. We're not talking Easter Sunday. We're not talking a Sunday when there's a holiday and people are gone, but an average Sunday. On average, there are 1,500 people or, or less that attend church Guyman, Oklahoma, on an average Sunday. So I got to figuring, and, and that's kind of a dangerous thing for me to try to use my arithmetic skills, but I think I figured out about what percentage that is of people in Oklahoma, in Guyman, Oklahoma, that are connected to Christ and to His church on a regular basis. It's about 12%. About 12% of, of Guymanites are actively connected to Christ and to his church. Now, and, and then that means 88% of our population is not actively connected to Christ and his church. Now, to put that number in perspective, in China, 
it's basically illegal to be an evangelical Christian. And they have about 10% of the population as evangelical people who are actively a part of a church, connected to the church. So, in Gaiman, in the, the Bible Belt, we just have a few more people going to church, percentage people going to church, than the entire nation of China, where going to church could get you arrested or thrown in jail or beaten or killed. Right? That's, a, that's a lot of folks around us that are not actively connected to Christ or His church. Now, to really more think more about this, we have to remember, Gaiman is a, a pretty multicultural place anymore. I mean, we've left the world of Beaver, Leave It to Beaver behind years ago. We're, we're not a, a white, middle-class community any longer. But was it, Melissa, 27 languages are spoken in our Gaiman High School, or represented in our Gaiman High School. 27 languages in Gaiman, Oklahoma. And these people that have come from all of these different cultures, they've brought a, a variety of religious expressions with them. Right? In, in what I know about, in Gaiman, there are Muslims. In Gaiman, there are Buddhists. In Gaiman, there are people who practice voodoo. In Gaiman, there are people who practice Santeria, which is a, a, a mixture of voodoo and Catholicism. In Gaiman, there are atheists. In Gaiman, there are people who worship various spiritism type stuff. In Gaiman, there are um, a high growing number of occult things in Gaiman. Right? To, to kind of really to drive this home, at least one church in Gaiman has at one point received voodoo dolls left on their porch that resembled the pastor and his wife. Two churches in Gaiman have found strange symbols left on their porch. And when they Googled and found out what they were, they were curses that were placed on the church for their destruction. At least two other churches have had things left for them that seem to be from Santeria, from that, the voodoo Catholic mix. This is Gaiman. I'm not talking about New York City, Colorado, right? I mean, we can expect that in Colorado with what's legal there now, but we're talking Gaiman. In Gaiman... All of this stuff is here. The reason I want us to think about that is we are in a series called Sin City. And we are focused on Paul's letter to the Corinthians and Paul's ministry in Corinth. And as we talk about what went on in Corinth, it's easy for us to say that really doesn't apply to us in Gaiman. Right? We're in the, the Bible Belt of America. That sort of stuff is not going on here. But you take the cultures, you take the religious expressions, you take just the immorality and the drug use and the things like that that are going on in our community. And here's what we have to understand. We live in Sin City. We live in a spiritually darkened culture where the majority of people we encounter are dying and going to hell. This isn't what we're talking about. This isn't stuff for a city church. This isn't stuff for people in New York. This is for us. The reality is there is more darkness and light in our little community. And in order for there to be a difference made, those of us who live in the light must go into the darkness. We must boldly Take the light of Christ to the darkened culture and engage the people that are bound there. That is our job. That is the only hope 
our community, our state, our country or our world has. So today, let's finish up looking at Paul's ministry in Corinth. Open up your Bible to Acts chapter 18. It's page 847 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's word. After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila from Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because they were of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. When Paul, or when Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit, testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. And when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own head, because I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there, and he entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing, believed, and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. The title of the message this morning is Into the Darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, and we want your will to be done in our lives. Father, we need you to guide us, to help us to see, to see our community as you see it, God. To see it as people, as filled with people that you love and want to save, but at the same time to see it as people filled with spiritual darkness and far from you and in desperate need of the salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. God, help us to see our role in this, what, we, what it is that we are supposed to do to make a difference in our community. Give us the faith to believe that we can because of what you have done for us and what you'll do in us and what you'll do through us. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Help me to, to just say your words and your ways for your glory. Father, help us to respond in ways that testify that Jesus is our Lord, that your Bible is our guide and your Spirit is leading us in all that we do. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Which may be seated. Now, Corinth was a city that was filled with wickedness and spiritual darkness. Paul went there with nothing but the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he made a difference. And the point that we need to learn from that, that spiritual darkness is no match for the light of Christ. And that, again, that's an important concept for us to really grasp. Because when you think about 12% of our population are actively connected to Christ and His church. We are, really, in a lot of ways, you could say it, we are greatly outnumbered. That can seem overwhelming. The reality is, it shouldn't be. Because the, the darkness of the world around us is, is no match whatsoever for the, the power of the light of Jesus Christ. We, we must understand that. We must believe that. So what we want to do is, from Paul's example in Corinth, is find out some ways that we can engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of Christ. Today, we're going to finish out this, and there's three ways that we do this. Number one is that we connect new believers to the church. But we've seen 
that we we have to go to them. We have to focus on the gospel. We have to expect opposition. But once we reach people with the gospel and we begin to help them come to know Jesus Christ, we must then connect them to his church. Look at verse eight. It says, then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians hearing, believed and were baptized. Now, this passage does not particularly say explicitly say that they were connected to the church. But here's what we know. They believed they were baptized. What was the point of baptism? What is the point of baptism? It is to identify yourself with Christ. Right? The people that were baptized, they were identifying themselves with the person of Jesus Christ and the church of Jesus Christ. When Paul left, there was a church at Corinth. Right? When Paul left Corinth, after the end of his year and a half ministry there, there wasn't a group of Rambo Christians here and there and over there. What there was was one united church. Now, troubles came after that, but Paul led people to Christ. Once he led them to Christ, he he baptized them into the body of Christ. He discipled them to be there. And then he he left them bound together as a church to take the light of Christ to a dark and a dying world. The church is necessary. The church is always necessary. It will always be necessary. We We are not meant to just believe, but we are also meant to belong. And if we had time this morning... I could show you time and time again from the book of Acts what happened when people were saved. Do you know what happened when people were saved? They were saved and they joined the church. It says over and over again. In fact, it was such a repeated theme that those who were saved joined the church that when the Apostle John wrote his first epistle and he wrote about people that had left the church, do you know what he said about them? They left us because they were not of us. But in John's mind, people who were making a profession of faith in Jesus but not connected to his church were not genuinely saved. The reason they left the church is because they weren't truly born again. Now, that's the Bible's position on the importance of the church and the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. And what I want to do today, rather than just explain why, that we have to be connected to the church, I want to explain why it's important. That we connect new believers to the church. And really, not just new believers, but we need these same things as well. The first thing is, new believers need spiritual food. As newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted the Lord is gracious. Right? So those, those that have tasted the Lord is gracious, they have been born again. They have a desire, a new desire for them. And it is for the, the word of God. Now, here's where we kind of go crossways. We'll say, well, yeah, I get that. Sure. But I can read the Bible on my own. But I don't need the church to to preach to me or to teach me. I can read the Bible myself. Well, I like that he uses the idea of babies, right? Newborns, of of people that are really children. Because here's what I know about kids. I have two daughters at my house that are teenagers now. But if left to themselves, they're not here so I can tell this story. I was afraid I'd have to buy them a dessert for this. But left to themselves and said, you can eat whatever you want to eat. I mean, whatever. You know what they'd eat? Little Debbie snack cakes, Reese's Pieces, and gummy worms. <laughs> that, that's all they would eat. Right? My job as a parent is to make them eat things that are good for them, like bacon. Right? Uh, steak. 
It is not to just let them have the, the bad stuff they want, but the good stuff that they need. Do you know what would happen? What happens? Not, I'll say what happens. This is what will happen when a believer disconnects from the church and still tries to feed on the word. Here's what will happen. They will only read what comforts them. They will never read what convicts them. Right? Apart from the church, I will read what makes me feel good, not what challenges me in what I believe or how I live. Disconnected from the church, I will only read that which confirms what I already believe, that which approves of what I'm already doing. I will never go into those areas that challenge me to move beyond my comfort zone. And what happens if we only get that which we want and never that which we need? We don't grow. You say, well, but still they're getting something. You know, the reality is... We don't apply that logic of not, it's okay not to be challenged, convicted to any other area of life. You know, when we have kids that come over here in kindergarten, and they have lots of ideas about things. Right? They, you ask them how old America is, it's 3,000 years old. Right? You, you, what's 2 plus 2? I think it's 12. Now, what, what kind of teachers would we have if when our kids were wrong, terribly wrong, what we said was, well, we don't want to challenge the way you already think. That's just not nice. It might make you feel bad. But what if we didn't tell them, okay, the way that you're acting, that's not right. You have to, I mean, it's not socially acceptable to act in this way. Be terrible teachers, wouldn't we? Be terrible. But there is no area of life where we say what you already believe is okay, even if it's wrong. There is no area of life where we say how you live is okay, even if it's terrible and wrong. Except within the Christianity. And within Christianity, we say, I really don't want to be challenged. I really don't want to be convicted. Well, nobody wants those things. But we all need those things to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We do not become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ by only getting what we want, hearing what we want, hearing what confirms who we are and what we already believe. We become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ by being challenged and convicted, wrestling through issues and hearing things that we need to hear, studying things that we need to study, not just what we want to hear. New believers need the spiritual food that the church will provide. Secondly, new believers need encouragement to persevere. Now, Hebrews 10.25 is familiar. Let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but all the more as we see the day approaching, we focus on the command. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. That certainly is a biblical command. The Bible commands us to gather as a church. But what I want to focus on today is not so much the command, but the reason for the command. Right? I mean, there is a reason that God has said not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And it's answered in the very first part. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The church that this was written to was persecuted. They were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. They were considering turning away from faith in Christ and going back to Judaism. In doing so, what they would be doing is they would be letting go of the hope that they had in Jesus Christ. See, the hope that they had in Jesus, the confession of their hope, was that Jesus was born of a virgin. Jesus died on the cross for their sins. That Jesus rose again on the third day. 
Jesus ascended into heaven, that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us, that Jesus hears us when we pray. He will save us when we call upon him. He hears, he cares, and he will be at work in our lives. That was that was the hope of their confession. And there was a very real pressure from the world around them to forsake that hope, to let it go and to turn away from it. And what the author of Hebrews says is you need the church. To help you hold fast that hope without wavering. You need the church to help you to cling to that and not turn away. And as different as we want to think our world is to theirs, it's really not. We live in a world that is opposed to our faith in Jesus Christ. We live in a world that wants us to question, to doubt, to deny, to turn away from Jesus Christ. The state meeting, one of the speakers that we heard is the professor of creation versus evolution at Hillsdale College. He's he has like more degrees than Bill Nye, the science guy. He is uh, top two percentile of intelligent people in the world. He is a lifetime member of Mensa. He has I don't know how many degrees. And as he talked about creation and evolution, he is a, a Bible believing Christian who believes in, in in creation, not evolution. And one of the things that he talked about was he showed us how many evolutionists that their mindset is we have to turn people away from religion. That we have to, to, to cause them to question, to doubt, to deny. That, that what would make the world a better place is if we purged religion from the minds of the people. A quote I read this morning said that we purge religion from the minds of the people through the children. That we are always just one generation away from the loss of religion. And if we can turn kids away from the Bible, then we, we win. I had, a, I had a teacher in college who taught um, a class that I can't remember off the top of my head. I lost it. And her, her stated purpose it was humanities, right? So it was like art appreciation, stuff like that. Her stated purpose on the first day, if you're a Christian, I want to make you doubt your faith. I, I want to make you doubt what you already believe. Now, she didn't say this to people who might be atheists. That she, they might doubt their atheism. No, she didn't. She didn't say it to people who might be Muslims. And there were Muslims in our class. The only people she focused on causing to doubt were Christians. She wanted us to doubt our faith. That was, I mean, not teach us about art, but to make us deny and question our faith. It's not just in college. The world at large is set against the faith of Jesus Christ. The world at large wants us to deny our faith. Wants us to doubt the reliability of Scripture, to, to deny Jesus, to not live for Him. And we need the church to help us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The church does this because the church reminds us the greatness, the power, and as he says there, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. When we gather here, we sing songs about Jesus we sing songs about the greatness, the power, the faithfulness of Christ. We study the word which testifies to us about the greatness, the power, the faithfulness of Christ. We talk to other believers that have gone through hard times, dealt with issues, and they can testify in their own lives about the greatness, the power, the faithfulness of Christ. The church helps us. Hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. And a new believer will have doubts and questions all on their own. They need the church to strengthen their fragile, fragile faith. Then a final reason we need the church. New believers need protection. 
Peter says, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is an enemy that, that is the enemy of our souls that seeks our destruction. He has nothing but hatred toward us, the desire to steal, kill and destroy. And he knows how to tempt us away from Christ. I mean, he, he's been doing what he's doing for thousands of years. He, he knows humanity very well. He knows what to put in front of us. He knows what we're tempted by. He knows how to lead us astray. And that's exactly what he's plotting to do. That's exactly what he will do. And the way that we overcome this, one of the ways we overcome this is by we have a, a church family that, that can help us in our time of temptation. See, the thing is, none of us are tempted by anything that's particularly special. First Corinthians tells us that there is no temptation taken us, but such is common to man. We are all tempted by basically the same things. It may be pride, it may be gossip, it may be jealousy, it may be pornography, it may be sexual sin of some sort or any number of other things. But we all relate to temptation. We all relate to the same sorts of issues. But Satan doesn't want us to believe that, that everybody struggles with sin like we do. Satan wants us to believe that we're inferior because we struggle. He wants us to think that the temptation we feel to give in to sin is because we're not very good Christians. Or maybe we're not even saved at all. We're not worthy to sit among such a, an elite group of people who obviously never struggle and never have any issues. And so what we do is we, we kind of front that, don't we? We front that we're perfect. We come to church and... We don't admit our struggles. We, we hold it up. We put up a, a plastic mask that, that has, I have it all together. I mean, we don't come to the altar to pray because somebody would see us and, oh my gosh, what would they think then, you know? So we, we front it. And then, and then what happens is, as I'm fronting it, I'm thinking, gosh, apparently I'm the only one faking it. They really do have it all together. Right? But at the same time, other people here are looking around. They're doing the same thing. Gosh, I guess I'm the only one that struggles. Everybody else does have it all together. I can't go there. I can't be there. I'm going to quit going because I just don't fit in. And once he's got us separated from the church, oh man, we were easy prey. I mean, who watches like the Discovery Channel? As a kid growing up, Dad made us watch Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom every Saturday as often as it was on. And the one thing I learned is that the antelope the lion gets is the antelope that strays from the herd. Right. I've seen the herd band together and, and fend off a lion. But I've seen one get distracted and be strayed off. And pretty soon that dude was, was chow. Right. And, and is he, I mean, the, the picture when they show it and they eat it and they just chewing it up in the blood everywhere. He is what? What's he doing? He's, he's devouring his prey. What does our adversary, the devil, want to do to us? He wants to devour us. And the easiest way to devour any one of us is to separate us from the herd. Once we're alone, we are far more easy prey. New believers, fragile in that point. They desperately need a church family to help them, to encourage them, to protect them, to pray for them. Church is important. It always will be. No matter where we are in our spiritual growth, no matter where we are, it is necessary for our lives. And if we want to impact the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to engage those in spiritual darkness with the light, then those that we help come from darkness to light, we need to connect to the church of Jesus Christ. Secondly, 
We need to find courage in the words of Jesus. Paul is there and he's facing considerable opposition. He's being blasphemed. They're saying bad things about him. And and we don't know what's going on, what happens between 8 and 9. But allow me to kind of posit a theory. I think Paul was probably a bit frustrated, maybe even a bit discouraged. And in that time, he gets a message from Jesus. The Lord spoke to Paul that night by vision. Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent. For I am with you. No one will attack you or hurt you. For I have many people in this city. This was meant to be a message of encouragement. A message to cause Paul to, to gird up his loins, as the Bible would say. And go on out and continue to engage those that are bound in spiritual darkness. The light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The, the, genuine, the, the general thrust of Christ's message to Paul is also for us. Right? And in order to take courage from it, there's three ways we need to take courage from it. First, what Jesus basically says is, believe me. Believe me. Because right? he tells Paul, do not be afraid, um, for I have many people in this city. Right? Believe me. Right? Paul is here preaching the gospel. At this point, there's not been just a, seemed maybe not a whole lot of fruit. What Jesus is saying is, don't be afraid. There's a lot of people in this town I want to save. Believe me. Trust me. Now, for us, we have to be able to believe Jesus as well. right? Because we we talked about this. 2 Corinthians 4. For gospel is veiled. It is veiled to those who are perishing. And the God of this world has blinded. Right? People who do not see the necessity of the gospel for their lives, they are lost. They are separated from God. They are headed for hell. They are perishing. The reason they don't believe is that Satan has blinded them to the the necessity of the gospel for their lives. He has done something to make them think they're good enough, to think it's silly, whatever, whatever he can do to keep them from believing the gospel. So Paul says, though, he says, but notice what he says. He says, we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord. So, Paul, how you engage those that are blinded, that that are blinded by Satan, You, you preach the gospel. Right? You, you share the message of Christ. And as you do, God commands the light to shine out of the darkness to give the knowledge Jesus Christ. So as we share the gospel with those that are bound in darkness, God does something amazing. And we'll talk more about that in a second. And he works through that and he helps them to see their need for Jesus and bring them to faith. And, and this, is, this is God's plan A. Right? God's plan A of how to bring people from darkness to light, is that believers, you and I, will go to them in a one-on-one basis, talk to them, share the gospel, and help them go from darkness to light. That is God's plan A, and there is no plan B. That is, that's it. That is the way God saves people. Through people sharing the gospel with other people. Hey, why did God choose to do it that way? Because surely God's speaking from a bush. God roaring from the sky. God using somebody other than me would be more productive, more, more effectual. But look at what Paul goes on to say. We have this treasure in earth and vessels, the excellence, the power, maybe of God and not of us. Now, here's a humbling thought. We see that and we see the treasure. We think, obviously that's me, right? I'm the treasure. Sadly, no. The treasure is the gospel. You and I, we're the earthen vessel. A jar of clay. Ordinary clay pot. Ordinary clay pots that are Flawed, broken, not exceptional in really any way. And that's what God chooses to use. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you have a better view of yourself than I do. But ordinary, broken, flawed. <laughs> that's this dude right here. 
I definitely see myself in that earthen jar, that jar of clay. The reason God chooses to use the ordinary to do the extraordinary is so that the glory will go to him. Do you know that if I was just really especially good at all that I did and I thought I was great and I helped someone come to know Jesus or be strengthened in their relationship with Christ, do you know who I would say thank you to? Me. You guys should thank me. What a blessing. I'm the treasure, right? But see, that's just not the way it is. We're not the treasure. The gospel is. And as God works through us ordinary to do something extraordinary, what do we have to say? Jesus did it. God did it. Now, that's a faith issue, isn't it? How do we prove? How do I prove that I believe that? Well, I have to, one, I have to believe that, that God's way is best. And God's way is one person telling the gospel to another person. I have to believe that God's way works. Right? That, that legitimately, that if I tell someone about Jesus, God will cause the light to shine in the darkness so they can come to know Christ as their Savior. I have to believe that. And then the, the final step. I actually have to do it. I actually have to talk to somebody about Jesus to give God the opportunity to shine the light into the darkness. And that brings us to our second part of the message. Speak for me. Jesus said to him, but speak and do not keep silent. Don't back up, don't let up and don't shut up. You keep telling people about me. You keep doing what you're doing. And I like this passage. This is a great one. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through the message of Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. So God, we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. As believers, we are ambassadors for Christ. Everywhere we go and in all that we do. It's a weighty thought, and it should be. And a part of being an ambassador, it means that we do His will and His want, not our own. And a part of being an ambassador for Christ, there's two sides to the coin of being an ambassador. The first is the message we take. It's a message of reconciliation, Paul says up there. And the idea is, Jesus brought me from darkness to light. And He connected me to God so I can have a relationship with Him. Now then... I take that same message that saved me to other people. I take the message that there is a Savior who died and rose again. That if you believe and you call upon Him, He will save you and He will bring you from darkness to light. That is the message that I have to take. But there's not only the message, there is an appeal to this. Because He says, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So here's Paul's wording them. I'm imploring you to be reconciled to God. Now, imploring is a strong word. It's translated in other places as begging. Right? So it's not like, so you think you might like to come to know Jesus Christ, your Savior? Oh, okay, that's fine. No, I don't want to bother you. It's more of a, an urgent begging, an appeal like, you know, If someone, you're trying to call someone out of a burning house, please just run to me. Please trust me. If someone's drowning and you're trying to lift them up, just trust me and hold on. It's that same sort of urgent appeal that we're to give to them. But notice what happens as we implore people. God speaks through us. And God pleads with them to do the same thing that we're doing. 
Since you and I go as the ambassadors for Christ and we share the message, it's not just me doing it. It's God working through me. As I am imploring people to turn to Jesus, God is also pleading with them to turn to Jesus. He speaks through us as we share this message. Man, that is, that is powerful to think about. And as Jesus gives us a, a message of encouragement to go into a culture that is dark, He says, I will speak through you, but you speak for me. You say my words. And, and this and this is kind of a rabbit trail, but let me say, this is why we focus on the message of Jesus. Right? If you go to people and you tell them to vote for Hillary, you're not speaking for God. But if you go to people and you tell them to vote for Donald Trump, you're not speaking for God. You're speaking for you. And there's no power in that. There's no hope in that. When you go to people, you speak the message of Christ and God speaks through you. And as you implore them to turn to Him, God preaches on the inside as you preach on the outside. We must go and we speak for Jesus. And that is it's a powerful thing. And when people reject the message, they're not rejecting us. Jesus said they're rejecting Him. So how freeing is it to know that I'm not ever rejected? They're rejecting Jesus. So we go and we speak, knowing that Christ speaks through us. And then a final one. Jesus says, I am with you. Right? For I am with you. Jesus has always known the importance of Him being with His people. When he was a bit about to ascend into heaven and send the disciples out to make disciples of all nations, he said, all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Think about what you know about the disciples from the Gospels. They weren't particularly clever. They weren't particularly bold. They weren't educated. They, they really didn't have worldly things going for them. And yet Jesus said, I'm going to send you out into all the world to make a difference in all the world. You're going to go to a spiritually darkened culture, take the light with you and make a difference everywhere you go. You 12 that again, not clever, not even particularly holy when he called them a religious why could they do that? Two reasons. One, all authority was given to him and he would work through them. Secondly, he would go with them. See, it wasn't them going to do the mission with Jesus cheering them on. You can do it. It wasn't them going on the mission with Jesus saying, go over there and take care of that and we'll see what happens. It was Jesus saying, come on, let's go. Follow me and I'll, I'll make you to be fishers of men. And as we go out to engage a spiritually dark culture with a light of Christ, that's what happens with us too. Jesus doesn't say, go over there and I'll cheer you on from over here. Jesus doesn't say, you know, hey, we'll see how it goes and you come back and report. Jesus says, man, they need me. Why don't you come here? Come on, go with me and let's talk to them. He's always with us. That's a message that encourages us. We don't go alone no matter who goes with us. Jesus is there. He goes, he guides, he helps, he directs, he empowers if we want to engage a spiritually darkened culture with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to find courage in the words of Jesus and say, these are for me, and then go. And then finally, connect new believers to the church, find courage in the words of Jesus, and then finally refuse to give up. 
Verse 11 says, Paul continued there a year and six months. Longest as far as I know that Paul stayed anywhere. It's a long time in one place for the Apostle Paul. And what I want us to understand is that he was in it for the long haul. Paul never left just because things got hard. He left when things were set in the way they needed to be. When Paul left Corinth, the church was established. The church was ready for him to be gone and a new guy to come in and take over. Paul was in it for the long haul. If we are going to make a difference in our spiritually darkened culture with the light of Jesus Christ, engaging cannot be a one-time activity. It must be something we do and we keep on doing. We can't give up when it gets hard because the reality is it will get hard. I mean, I mentioned last week, I think, about books on evangelism. I've got one book, and it's one of my very favorite books. Um, I've loaned it to Stephanie. And that dude, I mean, everywhere he goes, he just leads people to Jesus. It's the most amazing thing I've ever read. That's not my experience in life. My experience, I talk to people about Jesus, and they go, thanks, no thanks. Gosh, that's difficult to deal with. And so if we try to make a difference in people's lives, we try to help those that are bound in darkness to come out into the light, it's not going to be necessarily just... I talk to you about Jesus, they come out. Then I go talk to you about Jesus and they come out. It's going to be, I talk to you about Jesus and you say no. And so I talk to you about Jesus again and you say, yeah, I'll think about it. And I talk to you about Jesus again and you say, no, I don't like, I like it even less than I liked it last time you talked to me. And it's just doing it over, over, over again. And the, the problem with doing it over and over and over again is, When we do it over and over and over and there's not any visible fruit, we get discouraged. And if you have ever tried to to help someone come to know Jesus Christ, to come from darkness to light, then you understand the words of Isaiah the prophet. I read this in my Bible this week. But my work seems so useless. Spent my strength for nothing and to no purpose. I'm wasting my time. So what do we do when we feel that way? Because God knew that would happen. So God gave us an answer to this, and he had Paul write this down. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. We, we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Right? So there is a promise associated with God's word that if I, if I do good, right, if I do what I'm supposed to do, and I keep doing it, eventually there will be fruit from my labors. But the key to it is, is not quit. Right? If I don't grow weary, right, and I will reap if I don't lose heart, the key is not quitting. The key is keeping on when it's hard. The sad truth is, very often we only want to do what's easy. And we only want to do it while it's easy. The minute something gets difficult, we want to quit. And I think this is true in in like most areas of life. That's why many people, their lives are filled with stuff they started, but very little that they finished. They did it while it was fun and easy, but when it got difficult, they fell away. How much more when we come to spiritual things like helping those that are trapped in the darkness come into the light? It's hard. So what we do is we get excited. This is great. I'm going to do it. And we go and it doesn't work. Well, I quit. I'm I'm not doing it. And in quitting... We miss the harvest that would come. Do you know what I'm convinced of when it comes to helping engage the culture and helping them come to know Jesus Christ? That quitting is never a matter of I have to. 
It's a matter of I, I want to. I believe quitting is always a choice. It is always something I choose to do. Almost never something that I have to do. The Apostle Paul was a dude that, that knew what it was to make it to see it be hard. But he also knew what it was to keep going. I love this. We are oppressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed or broken. We're perplexed, but we don't give up and quit. We're hunted down, but God never abandons. We get knocked down, but we get up again. We keep on going. Now, again, with Paul, when Paul said get knocked down, I don't think that was like a figure of speech. Paul was knocked down. And what did he do? He got up and he went on. Paul wasn't a quitter. Quitting was never an option in his mind. Failure was one thing. He couldn't help that. But quitting, that was not on the table. He would keep going no matter what. That's the attitude that we have to have. 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he really is risen from the dead. Paul goes along into that. What it means to us now. What it means to us in eternity. At the very end of the chapter he, he says these words. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And here's what he means. Since Jesus is risen from the dead, nothing we do in Jesus' name is ever a waste of time. What if they don't respond? It doesn't matter. It wasn't a waste of time. What if they reject us? It doesn't matter. It wasn't a waste of time. Jesus sees, Jesus cares, Jesus rewards on faithfulness. Nothing we do in the Lord is ever in vain. So what do we do? We keep on. We don't give up. We don't lose heart. Trust that there will be in harvest. Here, here's what I, I have a question. I wonder. How many times do you suppose that we have started doing for the Lord? And it got hard. And we stopped just shy of the harvest. We quit just before the harvest was about to come. We missed what God would have done in us, through us, and for us. Because we gave up. Before we got to the finish line. You know, we may never know what we've, what we've missed out on like that. But here's what we can do. We can determine that that will never happen again. We can determine that I am going to take the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to those trapped in spiritual darkness. And I'm going to do it until Jesus calls me home or Jesus comes back. Knowing nothing I do is ever in vain. There will be a harvest that comes if I just don't quit. We live in a culture that desperately needs the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I, we have the light. I love the church and we're going to talk about the church as a whole next week. But if there is one, one thing the church of Jesus Christ has done that is wrong for most of my life. Is that we have huddled in our nice buildings and we have looked outside at the darkness and we have cursed it. can't believe they dress like that. Can't believe that was on MTV last night. Oh, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. The culture, the kids, the this, the that. Well, who have you talked to about Jesus? Well, I haven't talked to anybody. I'm just sitting here and gripe like a Muldoon, buddy. Does nothing. Culture doesn't need us sitting in here griping. Culture needs us to go out there with the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tell them what they need to hear. The church of Jesus Christ... It is the hope of the world because the church of Jesus Christ has the message of the gospel of Christ. And the spiritual darkness of our culture is no match for the power of that message and the God who works through it.
Let's stand as our musicians come forward.